So we are currently teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, as I remind you, some consider this the epitome of the teachings of Jesus and really the essence of Christianity, the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, the sermon is Jesus' answer to that universal and philosophical religious quest and question, how can a person truly be happy or what is the truly good life? And if you were to summarize the theme of Jesus' sermon, it would really be this, flourishing and human wholeness through life in the way of Jesus. That as we follow Jesus and practice his way of being, that we experience a deep, satisfying wholeness of person and human existence. That's what Jesus Christ wants for his people. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is presented as the king of God's kingdom. The king who proclaims that the kingdom of God is here, and he invites any and everyone who will listen, who will hear him, to join God's kingdom. Jesus demonstrates through his mighty signs of healing that the kingdom is present and at work through him. And in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus then teaches the way of God's kingdom, the ethics of God's kingdom. The, uh, some have called this the kingdom manifesto, but it's a way of living that we are invited to live out, to practice, and to cultivate here now in the midst of the brokenness of the world as witnesses to the coming kingdom of God. And I really believe that Jesus, in essence, is saying this in the sermon, now that I am here, God's new world is coming into being. So through him as our king, as we follow him, we'll see that what's taught here in the sermon are the habits of heart which anticipate here and now the new world that is coming into being through Jesus. And so purity of heart or mercy, peacemaking, and so on, these are not you know, things that we do to repay God. They're not a reward, uh, or excuse me, things you do to earn a reward, they are not even the rules of conduct now that we're in the kingdom of God, but they are signs of life. They're signs of the life of the kingdom of heaven, the life which Jesus came to bring. Now, last week, we looked together at Jesus' teaching on vengeance, on personal rights, and loving our enemies. And there, Jesus tied our response to these evils directly to God's own character. He says, because we are children of the God who is indiscriminate in love, Jesus invites us to live in and to live out God the Father's own perfect love and character. Remember, he says this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to respond to the evil injustice and injustices in our own personal lives with love. And specifically, as we saw, with an aggressive love, a strong love, a powerful love. Now, as I read over and thought about this next section of the sermon, chapter 6, verses 1 through 34, this deals with issues of reputation. It deals with issues of wealth. Uh, it looks at our personal acts of religious devotion and the concerns of daily life. I believe that this section is meant to be framed in this vision of the God who is perfect in love 
It's meant to be framed in this father who is indiscriminate in the way that he shows goodness to all. In fact, this is an underlying theme and emphasis of this sermon, uh, the character of God the Father. Actually, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks of the Father 44 times. But in this sermon alone, he mentions the Father 17 times, which makes up one-third of the mentions in the whole of the book of Matthew. And in chapter 6, there are 12 mentions of the Father, and they're all relating to his character, his kindness, his mercy, his seeing, his rewarding, his providing. And so I really think as we begin to look at our heart motivations behind religious acts and habits like giving, prayer, and fasting, that Jesus wants to root our motivation in the beautiful and whole character of our Father in heaven who sees, who rewards, who rewards generously, who loves and cares for us more than we can possibly imagine. So that's how we need to walk, I think, into this text this morning, understanding just the character of our Father in the heavens. He sees, he knows, and he loves to reward. So Jesus gives us the teaching here, and I believe we should read this teaching as kind of a header for all that comes after Matthew's uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. This is kind of the heading of that. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So Jesus is instructing us. He wants us to be careful in our giving. He wants us to be careful in our praying. He wants us to be careful in our fasting. Now, <clears throat> It needs to be said that Jesus is not telling us to do our good works in secret. Uh, some have almost like imagined like we have to wait for like the perfect moment where no one is looking or could possibly notice, and then that's when we like jump to do this good work. I mean, can you imagine like going out with like a mask and a hood on just so that nobody knew your identity when you did a good work? This is kind of just of an absurd thought, right? And actually, Jesus is not contradicting himself because he previously told us that when others see our good works, they will glorify our Father in the heavens. He's told us that we are his people whose character and good works light up the dark world like a city that's on a hill. A city on a hill is noticed. It's seen by others, right? We are like the salt that flavors the tasteless world and preserves it from decay. It's seen, it's known, it's experienced. So Jesus isn't all of a sudden changing his mind, but what he's talking about for the righteousness that we do. Just as Jesus has called for a greater righteousness in our dealing with the brokenness of life, where he's talking about anger, lust, murder, divorce, oaths, so also he now calls for a greater righteousness in our religious observance. And Jesus' word to us is be careful, pay attention, keep watch or keep guard of these things. 
Jesus is expecting that his people will be those that have a deep concern for their character and attend regularly to the heart motivations and desires behind even the good that we do. Jesus warns us that those that do their righteousness in order to be seen, recognized, or praised by others will get exactly what they want. People will see, but guess what? God will not. He will not take notice of those things. Dallas Willard so wisely wrote this. What they wanted, they got. They wanted people to recognize their good deeds, and people did. Listen to this. The ego is bloated, and the soul shrivels. I don't know if you remember, but a month or so ago, we were talking about purity of heart. And we're talking about any time we do the right thing for the wrong reasons, it splits the soul in two. That's evidence of a divided heart. And Jesus is calling for a wholeness of person, not just actions, but even motivations would be a reflection of the goodness of our Father in the heavens. Now, Jesus gives us an illustration of what kind of empty, bankrupt righteousness looks like. Listen to this. So when you give to the needy, assuming that we will, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, I've told you guys this before. I think Jesus is funny. And I think Jesus loved to use irony and sarcasm, hyperbole, right, which is just exaggeration. And he's doing that here. Just imagine carrying around a trumpet or an air horn with you, right? Doing a good deed, like $10 given, charitably, you know, like just imagine how absurd, how embarrassing for you to just like parade your righteousness before others, just in case you didn't notice what I just did here, drawing all attention. It's funny, but it's also horrific. This is actually what God thinks of our righteousness when we do it to be seen by others. It's showboating. It should be really embarrassing for us. We know when we see it, we're like, oh, gross, right? But how often we're tempted to do this or we actually do this. This is what Jesus thinks of our righteous acts when done for the purpose of people to notice and praise us. Now, of course, we had a moment this morning where we gave to support the work that God does through this church community, right? We take moments to, you know, give with open hands back to God who gives generously to us. Uh, in our church, we don't have like an opportunity to showboat that, thank God. But, you know, back in the first century with the temple and the way that offerings were given, you would go before everybody. You would stand in front of everybody and you'd bring your gift to the altar. We talked about this a while ago in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You bring your gift to the altar, you remember that somebody has something against you and you got to go and make it right, right? So you would do this in front of people potentially. But the righteous were doing it to be seen by others. So I guess the question is, what, well, what does this look like in our day and age? How does this connect to our context and the way that we live now and the righteousness that we do? Andrej Kojak observes this. He says, generally accepted religious practices like almsgiving, prayer, and fasting serve a double function. 
connecting people with God, and also establishing a social norm. Now, because such practices establish a social norm, one's honor and reputation in society become intimately connected with such religious activities. This is a recipe for disaster, as it makes it easy for pious practices to get directed not toward God, but toward establishing one's safety and security in society. This is precisely what seems to be happening with these first century opponents of Jesus. Now, going back a few months ago, we did a teaching on generosity, and Pastor Jordan was telling us about how the Greco-Roman culture actually had a system for taking care of the poor and the rich. See, the rich of society were expected to give to the poor and to give very generously. And you know what? The poor were also expected to give back to the rich, but the poor gave the rich honor. They gave the rich praise. Halls would be named after them. City centers would be named after them. Statues would be erected in their honor, but also their names would be toasted and cheered at festivals. Their names would go down in history. Oh, we recognize this family and this name, and they're of you know high regard and these things, right? So there was kind of this give and take that happened in the culture at, of the day. This reciprocal relationship was the norm. But Jesus is correcting that by telling his people to keep watch on their motives. This is not the reason that God's people are to do the good that they do. And it's not that we should cease from doing these good works like giving, praying, and fasting but that if they are to have any real righteousness to them, they must be directed to God because of a deep connection with the heart of God. Now, I want to make the same connection that this temptation is equally as true today. There are many who do righteousness and religious acts for the recognition that it brings, for the networking and connection that it brings. And in fact, each person is able now to carefully craft their self-image, making sure that you uphold or look like you uphold a certain standard that other people have for you. You can manage people's perceptions of you. And this is a game that we are far more comfortable playing than we realize. With the advent of the rise of social media over the last decade, now more than ever, you and I are acting as our own brand managers and PR firms, right? Whether we realize it or not, each of us is cultivating an image we want people to have of us. Um, you know, you just think about just the convenience now of, uh, you know, digital photography, and now, you know, each of us have that capacity just in our cell phone that sits in our pocket. You remember the days where you actually had to take it, you know, your photos to CVS and they had to print it for you? Remember dark rooms and all that? Remember the cost of printing your film? I don't know if any of you guys watch The Office, but there's that one where they're trying to get a shot of everybody in the office, and there's actually a couple times, but they're like all trying to jump at the same time, and they can't get it, you know. But Michael Scott is a whiz at Photoshop, right? And so he makes it all good in the end, right? I mean, this day and age, you can take a thousand photos and all of them just horrific, but you find the one, the winner. And it's like, look how beautiful our family is. 
look how much we love each other. He's like, you didn't see the other 999 photos, right? And if that doesn't work, we do have Photoshop capabilities. So we're all doing this to some degree, tempted to do this to some degree. With each photo we post, status we update, we run the risk of just playing the game of cultural Christianity. This game that is actually destroying the church in America with this veneer of authenticity. You know, there are now generations of Christians my age, some older, many younger, that are radically disillusioned with the church because of this very issue. Righteousness is paraded on a Sunday morning when the church gathers at a picnic, when everybody shows up, we dress a certain way, we act a certain way, we do our religious acts, but our real life, that's where the true character shows up. And it's one that is anemic. It is one that does not reflect the character of God. You know what, guys? That's exactly the way the rest of the world lives. We showboat. We put on masks. We pretend for others. And what Jesus is calling for is deep authenticity. A spirituality that is only in inward and has no outward manifestation is unfaithful to the way of Jesus. But equally, a spirituality that is only outward and has no inward devotion to God is unfaithful to the way of Jesus. Both are bankrupt. Both are bogus without the other. Well, what does that look like? What are you talking about? Well, when we do justice but ignore actually being just. We can condemn sex trafficking, raise money to help people out of it, while all the while indulging in porn. We lament, protest child trafficking and abortion, yet we're silent on adoption and foster care. How much do we really care? Or the personal inward holiness side that neglects justice. Oh, I condemn pornography but care nothing for the sex trafficked slave girl or boy. Or the worst of all, I like some social cause on Facebook or Instagram and think this is sufficient for doing righteousness and justice. That is not righteousness. At best, it's meaningless. I clicked a button. It called nothing of my character, nothing of my action, no cost to myself, and at worst, it is virtue signaling without any virtue. Remember, this sermon is about God making us into whole people, outward and inward. God wants to make his people into deep character, people who actually do mercy, kindness, service, feeding, helping, caring, giving, because that's the kind of people we are. We're the people of the God who is generous in love and in mercy because God's own spirit and character are at work in us and through us, a people who do righteousness for the right reason. You know, single-hearted devotion, this wholeness of character, is to be the primary object of our attention as followers of Jesus. This is why Jesus is saying, pay attention, be careful, keep watch on these things. 
Jesus is telling us not to make a show of our piety, not to advertise our righteousness to those around us. So rather than obsessing about how we are perceived by others, which that's just what everybody else is doing, we are to strive for a deep correspondence between our motivations, thoughts, and convictions, and the self that we present to the world around us. Jesus says our righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and that's because it's whole person righteousness, both heart and actions. And can I just add this? When we live out this kind of sincerity, when you live in this genuine way without ulterior motives, without agenda to get recognition from people, to make social network connections, you know, for your own benefit, you know, it cuts through just all the crap. It really does. People notice. Like a genuine human being who actually like, paid attention to me, not because of something they could get from me, not because of something I could do for them, but they just treated me like another human being. This has actually become radical in our day and age, you guys. Because everybody is trying to use everybody else for their own benefit. And when we live in this kind of authenticity, it puts God's kind of goodness on display. That's what it does. Now, Jesus gives us this illustration of a transforming initiative. Listen to what he says. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And when your father who sees what is done in secret, excuse me, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, so equally as silly as Jesus' last illustration of sounding a trumpet is this idea that like the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing. Like what is this? You know, like hands don't have brains. They don't think. They don't know. What is he talking about? And again, it's supposed to be funny. What Jesus is talking about here is a positive lack of self-awareness. That you and I would be so unaware of the goodness that we do, so unaware of who's watching because our eyes are fixed on our good Father. And we just love to do things to honor Him, to please Him, to put Him on display. We know that He's watching. So the idea is that good works, that righteousness simply flow from our lives because we are truly righteous people inside and out. You know, the way of Jesus, as I said a moment ago, it forms sincere people. A purity and wholeness of heart without mixed motives, the way of Jesus forms people who do not do the right thing for the praise and recognition of others, but for God's praise and recognition, he says. They don't do the right thing because people are looking at them. It will boost their popularity or people's view of them. They do it because that's the kind of people they are being remade into by God's spirit, by God's grace, by his work in their life. They are being remade into those who reflect the Father in the heavens who is indiscriminate in his love and goodness. Do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Okay, we need to just talk about weird Christians for a minute. Can we do that? Okay, 
How many of you have experienced this? Maybe you've even done this yourself, right? Somebody tries to pay you a compliment. They saw you do something kind or like something that put Jesus on display, and you do some like judo trick to like, try to dodge it. Uh, no, no, man, like, no, not me, just God. It's like, can you just act like a human with another human being and say, thank you? They're paying you a compliment. Uh, you know, you could just say, oh, wow, that's an affirmation that God is at work in you. Jesus is not talking about that we have to like somehow like judo chop and dodge like these compliments from people because, uh-oh, you know, I might be doing it for you know, the praises of men or somebody might steal my reward in heaven. You think God is like, oh, I know you did it out of sincere heart, but then somebody noticed, too bad, it all equals out. What kind of father in the heavens is that? Like, this is jacked up. Can we just not be weird Christians? Please. When someone pays you a compliment because of kindness that you showed, some Christian, Christ-like character that's put on display, thank you. Praise God. God is at work in me. That's a wonderful thing to recognize. Doesn't need to go to our heads. It can go to our hearts, and we can give thanks to God who is at work in us. Okay, moving on. One of my favorite pictures of this deep character that Jesus is talking about here, this lack of self-awareness, lack of, the good that, lack of awareness of the good that we do, is actually found in Matthew 25. Some of you might be familiar with this passage. The picture is of the judgment of good and evil at the end of the age. There, the king will separate the sheep from the goats or the righteous from the unrighteous. The goats, the unrighteous, on the left and the sheep on the right. And he will say to those on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. It's the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Something that has always stood out to me about this passage is how unaware the righteous are of their righteousness and good works. It is simply flowing from who they are. They're the sheep that belong to the shepherd. They're the citizens that belong to the kingdom of God. And so their identity just flows from their being. Everywhere they go, they see need, they meet it because they are truly righteous. And they're unaware the reward comes from the king. They're like, wait, when, when did I do that? When did that happen? A beautiful picture of what our left hand, not knowing what our right hand might be doing, is that we're doing these things because they have just become a part of who we are. We're doing these because we are in step and in line with the goodness of our Father in the heavens. 
Now, in another place, Jesus says that the unrighteous will be turned away from his kingdom. And in response, guess what? They have a long list of their good works that should qualify them for entrance. Yet Jesus' response to them is this, I never knew you. In essence, their good works were for them. Their good works were done to be recognized by others, but not to be recognized by Jesus. They were not done for Jesus. So, who are our good works and righteousness for? Now, similar to the teaching last week, I don't know about you, but I expect there to be an appeal here to do the right thing for the right reason because the poor need our charity. The world needs our good works. These, you know, shine into the world what the Father is like. And that is true. Good works can and do show what the Father in the heavens is like. But here, Jesus ties our motivation to the Father who sees and who rewards. Now, I remember years ago, I was teaching our church up north. I was teaching through 1 Peter. And there's this verse in 1 Peter. I might as well just turn to it because it's just so interesting. Peter talks about that when Jesus is revealed, listen to this, in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I read every single commentary I could find on this, and all the commentators were saying, I know it sounds like it's saying that Jesus is going to honor, praise, and glorify you, but that can't possibly be what it's saying. And sometimes they'll cite this passage from the book of Isaiah where you know, God says, you know, I am the only Savior and my glory I will not share with another. Well, in context, God is talking about idols. He's talking about false gods who claim that they can save, that claim that they can deliver. And God says, I don't share my glory with any of them. But you know, the story of the Bible is that God created us to share in his glory. God created us to rule over the cosmos with him, this covenant partnership. And in fact, this is where we're headed for. The promises in the book of Revelation to the faithful, God's people, the seven churches, oh, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to sit on my throne as my father has also granted me. Oh, the one who overcomes, they will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That is a messianic promise about Jesus. And he brings us in to share in his glory. Some of us are very uncomfortable with this idea that God will reward, that God will praise and honor us. But this is true. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, he talks about how there's something about us in human nature, like we just feel like mm, this can't be possible, that, that we would add something to the divine happiness. He says, but this is true. God doesn't just love you. He actually likes you. 
and that you are an ingredient in the divine happiness. And this is that weight of glory, which is beyond our imaginations. And so it is true. Because when the creation does what it was created to do, which is to reflect God's glory and goodness, says, then we should be very pleased with the product. And so is God. It's a great essay. I highly recommend that you go and read it. But another quote from C.S. Lewis, he says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Human ambition, human desires, our you know, goal and aim in what we want to achieve in life, God says, oh, aim higher. Aim higher. You were created for so much more. Lewis goes on to say this. We're half-hearted creatures. We fool about with drink and sex and ambition, and infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Oh, we are far too easily pleased. I think it's crucial for us to note that Jesus is not against the human desire for reward and honor. But so often, this is the way that we portray God. God doesn't want us to want honor, greatness, or reward, so we try to squelch that desire. But guess what? It'll just be directed in a different way to someone who doesn't deserve it, to someone who can't actually give us what our hearts long for. And Jesus never says that. What Jesus does is he redirects the motivations and goals of our desire for reward and honor as he does here. We might be familiar with the story of the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler who uh, was very righteous and he came to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to enter or to inherit the kingdom of God? He says, well, you know the law, all these things. He says, oh, those things I've kept from my youth. What more do I lack? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and come and follow me. And the man turns away very sorrowful. And Jesus, we sometimes don't go into this part. Jesus says to his disciples then, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they they were astonished and asked, well, who can be saved? And Jesus said to them, with man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. And then Peter, classic Peter response, just says what everybody else is thinking, but nobody has the gall to actually say it. He goes, we left everything and followed you. What do we get? And you're like, oh, no, 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 Peter, this does not look good on you. You know, like, you're embarrassed to read this, right? Oh, how presumptuous, how pretentious. And we expect Jesus to come back with this correction. You know, God shares his glory with no one. You shouldn't want anything, Peter, right? Jesus says instead, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, fields, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Wow. You know, in, I think it's Mark's gospel, Jesus says, 
He says very much the same thing. He says, all of this a hundredfold in this life and the life to come. See, the point that I'm making here is we aim so low in ambition and desire. God offers us all of that. Jesus is redirecting our desires and ambitions, our need for affirmation, our desire for security, for praise. Remember, at the end of this chapter, Jesus will say, don't store up treasure in the heaven, or excuse me, store up treasure in the heavens where there is no corruption. Make an investment that you can't lose. Jesus wants us to seek the reward and blessing of the Father because he wants good for us. He wants blessing for us. So rather than doing these things for the praise and recognition of people that are so fickle and fleeting that you could please one moment and radically disappoint in the next because they're human and so are you, Jesus redirects us to reward that is eternal. Honor from the Father that will go down in the annals of the kingdom of God. You know, you think about in this shame and honor culture that Jesus is speaking into, and I talked about how the rich would provide for the poor, the poor would provide honor, reward, and praise for the rich. I mean, think about Jesus is appealing to that kind of culture here and basically saying, what honor is lasting? Seek that honor. What reward is lasting? Seek that reward. What praise is lasting? Seek that praise. Again, he's not down on reward. Our desire for reward, our desire for praise. He wants us to have it. And he wants it to be eternal. And I imagine that we will sing the songs of the saints of God. We will sing their names all into eternity those who put the kingdom of God on display through their lives. Remember, Jesus says, who's greatest in the kingdom of God? I tell you, you know, even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the baptizer. And you're like, what? Whoever gives, you know, a cup of cold water in the name of a prophet is great in the kingdom of God. That there is this idea of great reward, of great honor to be had in the kingdom of God that will last into all all eternity. Why would we aim or settle for anything less than this? A name that cannot be shamed, marred, taken away from us. A solid identity as a child of God. Citizenship and belonging in the kingdom of heaven. A home in that kingdom. A place belonging in the house of God forever and ever, world without end. This is what Jesus wants us to aspire to. That we would do things in order to be seen by the Father who sees all. In order to be rewarded by the Father who is good, gracious, and generous in all that he does. So as we close this morning, I wonder, just this question, what are we looking for from humans? Praise, recognition, and honor. You know, really, it's just this deep 
void in the human heart that no created thing can actually fill. And that is because you and I were created for God. We're created for His love, for His friendship, for His praise and affirmation. Just as a child delights in the praise and affirmation of their parents, this is what our souls desperately want and need. And this is exactly what Jesus, the beloved Son, has offered us in His substitutionary life and death for us. He gives us the love, the belonging, and the pleasure of God that our souls need. It's already ours in Jesus Christ. Why are we directing it to anyone else? Why are we letting anyone else have the say? When God already gives us an identity with Him, a beloved, accepted children of God, Whose praise are you and I looking for? Or what recognition do you think you need? What'll do it? Man, if I just did this, if this person just said to me, gosh, if my parents just one time told me they were proud of me. I know it seems like that's true, and I'm not taking away from like, the psychological damage that that does to us. I think that parents are meant to reflect God's goodness and love to their children. And when we do, it is a tragedy that wreaks irrevocable damage. But I'm saying underneath that, what you are made for, what will actually heal you, is the love of the true father who is indiscriminate in his love, who there is no dark side to him, he is the Father of heavenly lights from whom every good and perfect gift comes. That's the love. That's the affirmation that we need. What honor could you and I attain? Actually, some of us in this room are incredibly talented, and some of us just aren't. Not in a way that the world might recognize, or you'll never have a plaque on your wall, and even if you do, what is it going to do for you? I don't know. I'm just asking. Like, I have a degree, and guess what? Nobody ever sees it. I don't walk up to tell people, well, I have a degree. Well, I just told a bunch of people, apparently. But, you know, the point is like, okay, I did it. I don't feel any smarter. I don't feel like I'm like, yeah, graduated with honors. You know, that's me. It's not what my soul actually needs. It's not enough. And it will not go on and on and last into the kingdom of God. But guess what? The Father who sees, who rewards His praise, His honor, His reward, His goodness, it's for here, for right now, and it will last into all eternity. And Jesus says, please, people of God, my children, do not aim any lower than this. So, Father, we ask that you would turn our faces toward you, redirect our desires to you. You are the fountain of living waters in whose presence there is fullness of joy, and at whose right hand are pleasures lasting forever.